This morning, we're going to be looking at verse 13 through all the way through chapter 26. Normally, I can only take a verse or two at a time, but since this is a historical narrative and since it repeats much of what we have studied in the past, we can bite off a much larger portion of Scripture. And I might add that I am absolutely amazed at the relevance of the Word of God. To think that it was written over a period of 1,500 years from about 1405 B.C. to 95 A.D. and passed down since then some 2,000 years. And yet, as you read it and study it, you think other than the culture, it could have been written today. It's amazing to me to see its relevance. But we must understand the reason why this is so, because the Bible is the written propositional self-disclosure of God Himself. It contains the very, the very mind of God. It contains the theme of the state of, of man and the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the joy of saints. Christ is its glorious theme, and our good is its design, the glory of God, ultimately its end. And so we come with this in mind this morning to this text. May I give you a bit of context here before we look into it? We come now to yet a third official hearing regarding the phony accusations made against the Apostle Paul by the Jews. Remember Felix the governor of that region some two years earlier had heard all of this and found no violation of Roman law worthy of death. He was said to be a real pest by the Jews, that he stirred up unrest among the Jews worldwide, that he was a ringleader of what they considered a non-Jewish sect, and that he tried to desecrate the temple. These were the charges, but there were no eyewitnesses and certainly they were all lies. Now Festus comes along and we read in verse 7 of chapter 25 that they brought many and serious charges against him. And obviously none of these are recorded. None of them could be proven. And now we're going to see once again, all of this is presented to King Agrippa. And he is going to say that there is nothing worthy of death or even of imprisonment. And as you think about it, even as the testimonies of two or three witnesses was required in the Mosaic law to establish the guilt of an offense, now we have witnessed the injustice perpetrated against Paul three times, as we will see this morning, as well as three times the testimony of his conversion. This is a fascinating historical account with stark contrasts. Therefore, I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, A Spectacle of Contrasts. And this morning we're going to examine four of them. We will, we will see the contrast of justice and injustice, that of humility and pride, that of sight and blindness, and finally the contrast of faith and folly. And again, each one of these themes is very well illustrated in our corrupt culture today. 
one that is literally collapsing under the weight of wickedness, while a naive and spiritually blind populace cheers it on like drunken sailors. And as we travel back to the first century, as we join with Paul and stand under the, the beautiful porticos of the palatial palaces of Caesarea, and I've been there in their ruins, and even to this day, even the ruins are beautiful. It's a beautiful place as it overlooks this magnificent harbor on the Mediterranean Sea. As we go here again this morning, dear friends, we are going to find ourselves getting lost once more in the wonder of divine providence. We are going to be amazed once again at how God continues to protect, protect his servant, the Apostle Paul. We're going to be astounded once again at how God faithfully builds his church despite enormous opposition. We're also going to be astonished at the power of Satan to blind people, to blind the proud from the light of the gospel, as well as the power of God to give sight to the humble. And as we marvel at these stark contrasts, I hope that we will marvel at yet another contrast. And that is the contrast for all of us who love Christ and have been saved by his grace. The contrast of what we deserve versus what we have received. Let me introduce the main characters here to you this morning. First of all, remember, we've got Festus. He's the governor that the emperor has appointed to be governor over over this region now in Palestine, over the Jews that they dominate. And he has replaced the cruel and incompetent governor Felix that originally incarcerated Paul for some two years. And Festus has inherited now this Jewish province that is seething with resentment uh, towards Rome the political turmoil in the land is on the verge of boiling over. In some ways, it is similar to our country today with the enormous polarity between different people groups. And he has also inherited another very political hot potato, and that is what to do with the Apostle Paul. The, joy, the Jews want him dead. But he knows because of Roman law, there is no reason to exterminate him. We also have King Agrippa II and his companion, Bernice. Friends, I would encourage you, you should probably not name your child after Bernice. She was a bit of a character. In fact, this was a wretched couple. Agrippa was with this companion, Bernice. She was his lover, but she was also his sister. So this was an incestuous relationship. You will remember that her other sister was Drusilla, the adulterous wife of Felix. Now, Agrippa has come from a long line of Christ haters. His great grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the one that murdered the infants in Bethlehem, trying to get rid of the king of the Jews. His great uncle was Herod Antipas. He was the one that executed John the Baptist and also sought to murder Jesus and later tried him. 
And then his father was Agrippa the first. He was the one that killed James and arrested Peter. And he was also the one that was ultimately devoured by worms because he failed to give God glory, as we read in Acts 12. Now, Agrippa II, you must understand, is is the ruler of northern Palestine. And he would have been about 32 years old, as we read here in this text. He was also very pro-Roman. He had sided with them much more than his Jewish brethren. However, he did not rule the southern part of that region down in Judea, but he was allowed to to appoint the high priest and maintain control over the temple treasury and some of those things. So while he's not necessarily sympathetic with the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was kind of the oligarchy that ruled the Jews within that particular um, time when even though the Romans were over all of them, the Jews still had some rule within themselves, even though he wasn't necessarily sympathetic with them, he was kind of part of that whole political structure. This was tantamount to what we would see today in Washington, where you have Washington politicians that are kind of career politicians, and it's basically one big club of of narcissistic career people that live primarily for themselves. He was notorious in Palestine as well as in Rome because of his incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice. He was also considered by the Jews to be a traitor. Later on, he would try to prevent the Jewish revolt that would occur in 66 A.D., but obviously that failed. He sided with the Romans and the Jews were basically massacred. And then you have Bernice. And as you can imagine, she was kind of a wealthy royal trollop. She would have fit well into our Hollywood and Washington scene today. She was the eldest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. In fact, she was first married to her uncle, Herod of Chalcis, at age 13. Upon his death in A.D. 48, she went to live with her brother, who was Herod Agrippa II. And later, she was even married to Polemon, king of Cilicia. And eventually, she deserted him and returned back to her brother. So she was quite a character. And we know that later on, History tells us that she became the mistress of Vespasian's son, Titus. So here we have the typical rulers of the kingdom of darkness that Satan tends to bring to power. Satan always tries to thwart the purposes of God, which God, by the way, allows him to do for his eternal purposes, always within the bounds of his providence. In fact, you hear today, I remember the, one of the little blurbs of this, is his name Bill Maher, I think, the, the comedian that's, that's trying to uh, make a mockery of all things sacred, including Christianity. One of the little clips is he's asking somebody, you know, if the devil exists and why does, why does God do that and is the devil or is God ever going to somehow get rid of the devil And why doesn't he hurry up and do so? And obviously this man has no understanding whatsoever of the purposes of God as they're delineated in Scripture. But may I remind you that God has 
literally created the devil and has allowed him to be the God of this world, small g, for his eternal purposes to contrast, as we read scripture, to contrast the ravages of sin with the righteousness of God. He allows Satan to exist to ultimately demonstrate his mercy and his grace towards sinners who have been blinded by the evil one, as well as to glorify himself in the outpouring of his wrath someday in a day of judgment. Luther was right when he declared that, quote, Satan is God's ape. And eventually his diabolical rule on earth will come to an end. And we read in Revelation 20 and verse 10 that the devil who deceived them will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, with that background, we come to the text and we're going to see the first contrast here this morning, that between justice and injustice. Look at verse 13 in chapter 25 of Acts. Now, when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for, now catch this, a sentence of condemnation upon him. Notice it does, doesn't ask for due process. They didn't ask for a fair trial. They wanted basically a summary judgment that would condemn him and have him executed. Verse 16, and I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused, before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. And so after they had assembled here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. And Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. It's interesting to note here in verse 22, when Agrippa said, I also would like to hear the man myself. The grammar in the original language indicates here that he had been desiring this kind of an opportunity for some time. So he was well aware of this man, Paul. And again, you must remember that thousands upon thousands of people have been coming to Christ over the last several years. So this is the context that we see. Dear friends, how sad. Think about this. What a complete mockery this is of Judaism's great confession of faith. The Shema from the first word here that we read 
and Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was their confession of faith. And the evidence of that kind of love for the Lord their God would be to fulfill the commandments, to be obedient to what God has called them to do, including the sixth commandment that says you shall not murder. Yet they scheme to murder the Apostle Paul. Even the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Yet this is the very essence of their charges against Paul. What staggering hypocrisy. To think that they would wear these things in their phylacteries, on their wrist and, and on their forehead. And sometimes you see this today, even amongst many of the Orthodox Jews. They would even place a copy of the Shema in a small metal box or, or a skin. And you will see this in many places, especially in Israel today. It's called a mezuzah. And it's a, it means doorpost. And they, and they will have this on the doorpost. You will even see it on the doorposts of the motel rooms in Israel. They will have a copy of this. In other words, they're, they're absolutely obsessed with the idea of loving the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And yet, look at the mockery here. What a living contradiction to all that they hold sacred. And here, dear friends, we see the contrast of 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 justice and injustice. Yet God offers them mercy instead of justice, the forgiveness of all their sins through Jesus of Nazareth, who satisfied the justice of God for all who trust him as savior. As a pastor, many times I hear people foolishly say, well, the God of the Bible isn't fair. And my response is, you're absolutely right. He is not fair. And I say that's a good thing because I don't want fair. I don't want justice. I want mercy and I want grace. And that's what he gives for all who come before him crying out for that which they do not deserve. And, you know, every false religious system has some system of of earning salvation through a variety of kinds of religious works, things that you have to do. And the assumption is that somehow we can do enough in order to meet the divine standard. And so if you think about it, as long as that is kind of within my realm, as long as I can be a good person and I can just kind of be good enough, then there's really no need for a savior. And there's no need for me to repent because after all, I'm not that bad. And of course, that betrays an absolute, an absolute blindness to the holiness of God. And inevitably, these will be the same people like those first century Jews who will be hostile to the gospel of grace. They have no comprehension, comprehension of the justice they deserve and the mercy that can come through Christ. They don't understand that, as we read in the word of God, the just shall live by faith. They don't understand that. And the evidence of having been declared righteous or justified, as stated in Romans 5, is that a person will have peace with God. In other words, we're no longer at war with Him. His wrath is no longer upon us. 
We will stand in grace. We will have the hope of glory. There will be an implanting of divine love in our hearts. There will be the promise to escape divine wrath. And finally, there will be joy in the Lord. Dear friends, Paul had all of this and the Jews had none of it. Therefore, they were blindly committed to injustice, not justice. They had no grasp of mercy. They had no grasp of grace because they were convinced that they needed neither. A second contrast is that of humility and pride. I want you to understand something here. Although this was an informal hearing, it was also an opportunity to be noticed. And this is always the passion of the proud, as well as the ambition of most politicians. Notice in verse 23 of chapter 25. And so, on the next day, when Agrippa had come together with Bernice amid great pomp and had entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city. Now, I want to stop there. Notice it says, amid great pomp. In the original language, fantasia. It means pageantry. It means a showy spectacle. Here's what's going on. Here we see a parade of the movers and the shakers. This is a star studded spectacle of celebrities and nobility. This is the social and the political elite that are gathering together. Imagine a cross between the Hollywood um, Emmy Awards and a presidential inaugural ball. That's kind of the type of group that's here. And like strutting peacocks, the elite entourage enters this huge auditorium. And again, you can see the ruins of it to this day in Caesarea. They're enjoying all of the oohs and the ahs of their sycophants and their flatterers in the crowd while musicians give tribute to the royals. If we were there, we would see Agrippa, who would have been decorated with beautiful silk robes of royalty, much purple. He would be draped with colorful sashes. His body would be adorned with ostentatious necklaces. He would be bejeweled with 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 rings and bracelets, and they wore a tremendous amount of makeup. In fact, if you were to have seen them in those days, and we've had we've got some renderings of them, they would look like what we would call today drag queens. That's what he would have looked like. He would have had a priceless crown of gold on his head laden with emeralds and rubies, and he probably would have clutched some kind of scepter in his hand as he slowly glided across the floor. And then you've got Bernice, that she would have been decked out in her finest and most seductive wardrobe. With the flamboyance of a Hollywood starlet, she would have gracefully and slowly sashayed her way through the crowd to some exalted seat of prominence as she carefully soaked up every glare of envy and lust. And, of course, every prima donna must have their entourage, and I'm sure the little servants would have been around her as well. And then you've got Festus. He would likewise have been adorned in the highest of Roman fashion. I'm sure he would have 
slowly bowed and gave gestures to the audience with various motions of acceptance of their adulation. And then the text says that the commanders were there. These would have been the military commanders. It was a a Roman city. There was a great military presence there. These men would have been dressed in full military regalia, rich leather with beautiful shining armor, red sashes, magnificent plumes coming out of their helmets. And then you've got the prominent men of the city. These would have been the dignitaries and probably their wives, each one equally desperate for their share of the attention and the applause. If you were there, you would see and smell the beautiful garlands in the massive auditorium, as well as smell the incense that filled it along with the sounds of processional music and cheers and laughter and applause. Then suddenly, the boisterous adulation ceases. There's a hush that comes over the room. And suddenly, all of this pomp and majesty turns to mystery. As some soldiers bring into the room a short, rather hunchbacked, bow-legged man, as history tells us, bald-headed man with a rather large nose, a very unassuming, unpretentious creature, a prisoner wearing the tattered robes of a peasant, not a prince, a man that is bound in chains, a former rabbi, the man who in the eyes of the Jews was considered a real pest, who stirred up unrest among the Jews worldwide, a ringleader of what the Jews considered a non-Jewish sect, and the man who tried to desecrate the temple. There was no fear on his face. There was no grimace of anger, but rather there was a a softness about his his countenance. And I'm sure if we were to look upon his face, we would have seen a face that manifested much of the same appearance as the Lord in his day of trial. We would have seen compassion. We would have seen courage and confidence. What a contrast between humility and pride. In verse 23, we read, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. You can imagine, he's brought in now. There's no pomp. There's no ceremony. There's no applause. All you can hear coming from the far end of the auditorium is the rattling of chains and an occasional snicker from the crowd. Now, dear friends, one of the greatest servants of the Lord, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, is about to become the entertainment for the hour. I wept when I meditated upon this scene. And I remembered standing 
on the very place where Paul would have stood there in Caesarea. And I also remembered what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 9. He said this, God has exhibited us apostles last of all. As men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. He went on to say we are weak. We are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed. We are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. But when we are reviled, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Beloved, what a stark contrast to the blasphemy of the prosperity teachers of our day that dominates apostate Christianity. Telling people, come to Jesus so you can be wealthy, so that you can be successful, and so forth. Well, obviously, Festus, you must understand, is bewildered. He doesn't know what to do with Paul, with this whole mess. And again, he needs to toe the line between Roman law, because Paul was a Roman citizen, and they've really found nothing to even keep him in prison. But yet he has to appease the Jews to avoid an uprising. That's when it says in verse 18 that the Jews brought charges against Paul, not of such crimes as, as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. And as a result, in verse 20, he says that he is at a loss how to investigate such matters. You can imagine, now Paul has appealed to Caesar. And he has to send some kind of letter with Paul saying, here's why I couldn't figure out what to do with this guy. And he is afraid that Caesar is going to be upset with him. So Agrippa's expertise now is very welcomed. And I find it interesting, like all non-believers the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we have seen here in this text, it was a myth to him. He just couldn't imagine that anybody could believe anything so preposterous. You see, even as today, people do not understand biblically that the resurrection of Jesus Christ ensures the resurrection of all believers as we read in Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him. He had no understanding, as most people don't today, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ even ensures our justification. The fact that God declares us righteous on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ on our behalf. Not through our own merit. 
We read in Romans 4:25 that he was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, since God approved of Christ's work on the cross. And since we are united to Christ, God also approves of us. They have no understanding that the resurrection of Christ even ensures that we will receive someday a perfect resurrected body. My, how I long for that day, don't you? We read in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, Christ and his resurrection was the first taste of a crop that will one day ripen. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians six fourteen that God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And similarly, in 2 Corinthians 4.14, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence in, in his presence. So they didn't understand any of that. Festus didn't understand any of that. So there he stood. Again, if you can go back to the scene with me, there he stood seemingly all alone. Yet, dear friends, in reality, Even though he was clothed in the robes of a prisoner, he stood surrounded by a heavenly host of angelic creatures that were so magnificent and still are so magnificent that if we were to see them in our current state, in our unglorified state, we would immediately fall on our faces in fear and worship. Moreover, the triune God was there. The omnipresent God was there. We know biblically even that the triune God dwelled within him as he does with all believers, ultimately ruling all that occurs. No one knew this, but Paul did. Festus goes on now in verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, You behold this man about whom all the people of the Jews appeal to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. Since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. So as we can see here, Festus is afraid. We've seen the contrast of justice and injustice, that of humility and pride. And now here in chapter 26, we see the contrast of sight and blindness as the faithful apostle now offers his testimony once again, primarily to Agrippa, since Agrippa is in charge, but also to the audience. And here, dear friends, you must understand that we have a solitary man who has, by divine grace, been given spiritual sight. And this spiritual sight now shines through him, the light of the gospel of truth, and it's going to shine on These people that are spiritually blind. Now, I want you to understand another important thing before we look at this 
portion of the text. Paul's primarily goal here is not exoneration, but evangelization. You see, he's not concerned about getting free. He knows that's up to God. He's content in whatever circumstance he's in. Remember, in Philippians 1, later on he would write how he cared nothing for his own life. He says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Then in verse 20, he goes on, he says, my earnest expectation and hope is that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? To die is gain. You see, he understood that now he has a golden opportunity to unleash the gospel upon this massive audience of noblemen and dignitaries and commanders and all of the social elite of Caesarea. By the way, this should always be our attitude, dear friends, those of you that know and love Christ. Regardless of the difficulty of the situation in which you find yourself, you must come back and say, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to somehow reflect the glory of God. Give me boldness to present the truth of the gospel that someone might be saved. Now notice what happens here, beginning in verse 1 of 26. And Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, you must again remember that Agrippa is much more pro-Roman, not pro-Sanhedrin. So possibly Paul is thinking, I may have a bit of a chance here of, of you being a little bit more sympathetic to the things that I'm about to say. But again, his goal is ultimately that of evangelism. So he says, verse 4, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. You see, people knew, knew Paul. He was famous. And now you might say he was infamous. He was notorious. Verse 5, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Well, what hope is he talking about? Well, the same hope that he has preached all through Acts, the hope of the messianic kingdom that is accompanied by the resurrection of Israelites that will accompany and rule and reign. We read about it in Ezekiel 37. This was the hope that he repeatedly preached in the synagogues, you will recall. As we read in chapter 19, verse 8, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom. And so he's saying, look, this, was, this is the hope that I've been preaching about. 
and the resurrection that I've been preaching about, the promises that have been given to us all through the Old Testament. Verse 8, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? In other words, we, we've been promised that this is going to happen. And, and in essence, he's saying that Jesus' resurrection literally validated all of the Old Testament promises of resurrection. Why should you be surprised? Verse 9, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Cast my vote in the original language literally means through my pebble. What they would do, you would have either a black or a white pebble. If they were guilty, you would put the black one in. If, you, if they were not guilty, you would give the white. He said, I, I cast my pebble against them. Verse 11, as I punished and as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. While thus engaged, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and, and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In other words, he's saying here that I understand the resurrection of Christ that was promised. And I also understand the transformation that God has wrought within me. I once persecuted people who believed this, and now I'm willing to die for this. In other words, he's saying the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the transformation that has occurred within me both should come together to validate the reality of the power of the gospel of grace. Verse 21, for this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles." I'm struck with verse 18 regarding the Lord's commission to him. 
where the Lord said, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. If you look in Scripture, you find that light is a metaphor that is frequently used to describe salvation. In fact, Jesus said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And he also said in John 3:19, this is the judgment. That the light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, obviously, Paul's audience was blind to their sin and to the Savior. And so, too, are so many people today that we know and love, family members, people that we work with, people in our community, certainly the culture all around us. And you see, friends, this is why so many people in our culture absolutely hate Christians. Now, when I say Christians, I'm not talking about this politically correct type of Christianity that is not Christianity, not this phony stuff. I'm talking about true Bible-believing Christians. This is also why people don't want to come to a church that teaches the truth. Oh, they'll fill up churches that don't, but not those that do. They prefer the darkness rather than the light. Ephesians 4:18, Paul said that unbelievers are darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. In other words, they're spiritually dead. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Don't we see that today in our culture? People that not only condone homosexuality, but encourage it. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. People that have absolutely no compunction whatsoever in killing an unborn child. We even have some who agree that it's all right to allow an infant who has been born as the result of a botched abortion to go ahead and let it die. Unbelievable. Absolutely inconceivable. But again, they're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. And sadly, this is a description of even many so-called Christians in ostensibly evangelical churches in our culture. Churches filled with tares. Again, they have no understanding of the truth, as the text says. Their hearts are hard and calloused. It means that they're absolutely insensitive to moral and spiritual things. They're given over to sensuality, meaning total licentiousness. They are people that are absolutely bereft of any moral restraint. We are dealing with this even now in our community, in a so-called church. Dear friends, one of the surest signs of spiritual blindness, as we see here, will be a hatred of the light. Likewise, one of the surest signs of, of spiritual sight is not only a love for the light, 
and all that that includes the glorious gospel of Christ, but also a passion for others to see. And we know, according to Second Corinthians four, that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. And there we read that the God of this world, referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers that they might not see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. Dear friends, I would ask you to examine yourself today, those of you that claim to be Christians. Please hear this. Don't you dare say that you love the light if you have no desire to bask in its exposing and enlightening rays. Don't you dare say that you love the light if you never shine in Christ-like virtue. Oh, you might shine when people are looking, but in private, especially in the secret caverns of your imagination, you prefer the darkness over the light. Don't you dare say that you love the light if you have no passion for others to see the light. And therefore, when you're in the darkness and it's all around you like Paul, you're afraid to shine. What a contrast here of blindness and sight as we witness this, this sobering spectacle. Paul was given eyes to see the light, and this was validated by his light in his life, as well as his passion for others to see. And the audience was willfully blind, preferring the darkness over the light. The final contrast is that of faith and folly. And we close with this this morning, beginning in verse 24. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. My, how many times I have heard variations on that theme. And you have as well. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Let me pause here. There's no conviction here. This was a taunt. This was a mock. Agrippa was not on the verge of coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. We look at this grammatically and we see that he's literally saying, with this brief description this brief defense, do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian? Ha ha. That's the point. Verse 29, and Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And the king arose and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had drawn aside, they began talking to one another, saying, This man has not done anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus,
this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Once again, for the third time, Paul has testified on his behalf and found innocent, yet he remains in chains. He's not released. Why? Well, certainly Festus could not release him because he has appealed to Caesar, but also for fear of the Jews. But dear friends, please hear this. There is another very profound reason why he will remain in chains. And that is because the finger of God is upon this whole scene. In the providence of God, with his glorious omnipotence, he is going to keep Paul within the confines of this unique mission field preparing to fulfill his promise to him to ultimately take him to Rome where he will be his witness once again. Here again, dear friends, we see a spectacle of contrast. A man of unwavering faith, as he says, uttering words of sober truth, uttering those words to a fool, a fool among fools who mocked him and the Savior that he served. May I challenge all of you who know and love Christ this morning to be a contrast in whatever sphere the Lord puts you in. To be a contrast of justice in a world of injustice. To contrast humility with the pride that is all around us. Knowing that God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. May I challenge you to examine your life and Rejoice knowing that the sight that you have was not that of your own making, but rather a gift of the illuminating work of the Spirit of God that opened your eyes so that you could see who you really are, who the Savior really is, and what the Word of God really teaches. And as you see these things, won't you have a passion to help others see it as well? even though they are blind. And rejoice also in the gift of faith, especially in a world of fools. Rejoicing with humility, knowing that were it not for God's grace, we would have been the ones snickering at the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank You for Your Word and its ability to speak to our hearts. Lord, it's so easy for us to deceive ourselves. We are so hopelessly biased in our own favor. We are so committed to our own goodness. We can't imagine your holiness. But Lord, I pray that the truth of our own wretchedness, our own depravity, would somehow grip the hearts of anyone here who does not know Christ. And for those within the sound of my voice, Lord, I pray if they do not know and serve and love you, if they have never been born again, how I pray, Lord, that by your grace, you will bring overwhelming conviction to them and that you will save them. Lord, thank you for the contrast that we've seen today. Thank you for the contrast that you have performed in our life from where we were to where we are and where we're going versus what we deserve. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus.
Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.